ahead and start the sermon. All right. And start the clock. Thank you. Eric was already doing it. You guys are so good. All right. This is part two of what we started last week. So what did we do last week? Just real briefly. Here's what we did. We asked this question. What makes God happy? And what we discovered is what makes God happy is when people turn from where they were going, which is their own direction. Turn your foot means repent, right? Repent means turn your foot. So when they were going their own direction, and then they turn their foot, and they go God's way, the way that he's leading and towards him. When that happens, God rejoices. The heavenly host rejoices. He taught us to rejoice. The only problem is, is what that means is, is that we have to be involved in somebody repenting. You know, I can, it's, it's bad enough to tell people you have to be involved in evangelism. But to tell people that you have to be involved in other people repenting, that seems like a high bar, doesn't it? So the cool thing about the sermon last week is that God showed us how to help somebody repent. And it turns out to be super simple, super easy. Here's all it takes to be the kind of person that helps other people come to repentance. Here's all it takes. Be the kind of person that repents. It doesn't mean that you're on the street corner passing out tracts and doing that kind of thing. What it means is when you're the kind of person that has a relationship with God, where in all things, not just the one time of your salvation, is there anybody else in here, I'm sure I'm the only person, that continues after 40-some years in Christ, that continues to walk my own way so much that it's just aggravating. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. You know, I know so much better. You know, why do I do the things that I don't want to do and don't do the things that I do, right? And so the point is, is here we are as Christians walking a certain way that turns out to be our own way. And when we find out that it is, God is still rejoicing that we should turn our foot and start going his direction, right? And it turns out that when you do that, when you're the kind of person that can be corrected, when you're the kind of person that's always changing and for the better, when you're the kind of person that frankly acts in ways that are surprising, that's incredibly attractional to people. That brings people to repentance themselves. When your life has changed and suddenly you're doing things that you didn't want to do. Brian Boyer built a... a uh, a play set for his kids yesterday. And he sent out a great email. It was perfectly done, Brian, perfectly done. And it was to a bunch of his friends, of which I am one. Now, I had a legitimate excuse, let's be clear, okay? But he sent out a, a barn-raising kind of an email. Hey, come by and have fun and let's do this, right? And he sent it to several friends, and you can see who he sent it to. And I did message him back and say, I honestly did. I already had a breakfast and a lunch planned, and so it was tough for me to do it. But here's the truth. Warren, thank you for showing up. <laughs> because that's who showed up. Now, you know, we all knew that we were supposed to come. <laughs> we all knew that we wanted to come. But did we come? <laughs> right? This is, this is this thing that's in us. And what God's doing is when all of a sudden you're the kind of person that is responding to everything that you want to respond to. When you're the kind of person that's doing everything that you know you should be doing and not doing anything that you shouldn't be, in a world that is so broken, 
That's just really attractional. Why do you do that? <laughs> right? Particularly if, some people it's natural to, they're just helpers, right? But if you're not a natural helper and all of a sudden you like helping, people would like to know your secret. Because <laughs> they would like to become a helper. They just don't want to. So they got to figure out why you now wanted to all of a sudden. Now watch, I'm talking about actions right now, but do understand in the sermon last week, the thing I actually made the argument for was is that reactions are even more important. I told the story about Crazy Chico, and Crazy Chico, this guard would come in every day, and he would say to him, uh, you know, he would feed this Crazy Chico in isolation. He would say, God, Lord, Jesus loves you. And Crazy Chico, to get him to shut up, finally took the Bible and smacked him in the face with the Bible and broke his nose so bad, sounded like a baseball bat, blood gushing from his nose, tears gushing from his eyes. The, the big guard that's twice the size of Chico, and Chico's ready to fight because he knows the reaction. And the guard's reaction is, with tears streaming out of his eyes, is, Jesus loves you. And that was the moment that Chico couldn't process. The reaction, the reaction... The reaction turns out to be more important, honestly, for most people's read of you than your actions. Because you can get your actions worked around to the right place. But your reactions are tough. C.S. Lewis, this morning, in the, if you do my Facebook, and if you don't, please do, because I post fun stuff. I, I post good C.S. Lewis stuff, and then I post other things, like Adam Lebonsky's stuff, which I find hilarious, okay? So, look at what C.S. Lewis said this morning. When I look at how I react to things, I find I have all too often sulked or snapped or seared, sneered or snubbed or stormed. This, this Tuesday at my threefold, we all said, why are our reactions to our spouses worse than they are to anybody else in our lives? <laughs> That's tragic to me. I don't want that anymore. But watch what Lewis says about reactions in general. The excuse that immediately springs to mind is that the provocation was so sudden and unexpected. It caught me off guard. I had no time to collect myself. Now that may be, now that may be an extenuating circumstance as regards those particular acts. Look, it would obviously be worse if they'd been deliberate or premeditated. My nastiness towards them. That would obviously be worse. But now watch what he says. On the other hand, surely a man does what he is. Taken off his guard is the best evidence for what sort of man he really is. Surely what pops out before the man has time to put on a disguise is the truth. If there are rats in the cellar, you're most likely to see them if, they go, if you go in very suddenly. But the suddenness does not create the rats. <laughs> it only prevents them from hiding. In the same way, the suddenness of provocation does not make me an ill-tempered man. It only shows me what an ill-tempered man I am. Is that awesome? <laughs> right? Right? It's the reactions that really get it. That really bring it out. Right? Okay. How do I get to a place to where my reactions are right? I mean, I get, I get that when I'm in the, we talked about Crazy Chico and somebody said afterwards, they said, here's the problem, Kurt. I don't think it's possible that I'm going to be in a situation where I'm a guard in a jail and I get smacked in the face with a Bible. So I won't be able to react properly. And I said, no, that, was, that wasn't the point I meant to make and I hope everybody did get the point and that was this. 
I think the thing that people read about us is the subtlest little things. It's the moment when Brian asks us how we respond. That's the read. And as much as you can cover it, as much as you can figure it out, as much as you can even be, you can be the kind of person who says no, but then does the right thing, and God says that's better, right? Than being the kind of person that says yes and then doesn't do it. But the bottom line is, is you still have to, we read people in such, right? It's that instantaneous flash that we see. I want to get to be the kind of person that the instantaneous flash that comes out of me is the ones like Jesus had. Somebody comes at Jesus with a woman caught in adultery and his instantaneous flash is so gracious and loving that it is surprising and changes people's hearts and minds. I want to be the kind of person who's been changed so deeply that that happens. And now God made evangelism easy because it turns out I don't have to evangelize. Right? Because all i got to do is just be the kind of person that he's changing, really changing. But that really changing part turns out to be really hard. But what if it isn't? What if it is also incredibly easy? If we just get how God's doing it. So that's where we're going. And I just want to tell you, it's amazing to me who God is. Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, those of you who can't figure out how to get this right. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you. I'm humble and gentle at heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Wouldn't you like that? Wouldn't you love to have rest for your souls? I do the things that I want. I don't do the things I don't. I'm at rest, at peace. My yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. That's his promise. We're going to see it again today. So with that, Andy Davey, this is phenomenal. Where is he? Usually over here. Andy, this is great. Uh, from Australia. So, uh, you know, when he talks, you'll like it. Okay? <laughs> right? It doesn't matter what he's saying. It's just how it is. Okay? But this is a great man and a great part of a great couple, too. And I have great hopes for what God will continue to do with them. They've come in and really, really synced in and so on. But God is, I just, you want to get to know them, okay? There's a lot in here. There's a lot of depth. Still waters run deep, deep couple. So go ahead, Andy. Pray for the sermon and lift up another church. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. And Lord, we just really pray that today the words that we speak through Kurt, that they would, They would sink into our hearts, Lord. They would bring about uh, not a temporary thing, Lord, but an eternal change in our, in our lives this morning. Lord, that your word would accomplish that which they want it to do. Father, just thank you that, that your love for us and your, your concern and your care for us, Lord, that it would be uh, manifest this morning, Lord, that we would uh, acknowledge it Amen. Father, we also lift up um, the church right now to uh, the Russian church. Amen. Lord, I pray that you would, um, this morning, that you would have a special blessing for them, for their sister, um, that your spirit would keep them, and Jesus would be 
That's the cool thing. Have, has anybody ever prayed for the Russian church before? Can you remember that? I don't think anybody has. We have five churches that actually meet here. But that's nice pick. Okay? Really like that. Hey, uh, Philip, could, could I get a little water? Thanks. Another servant's hearted man. Okay. We're in the parables, the ones that we did last week, where the shepherd that had lost his sheep left the 99 to go after them. The other one was the woman with the lost coin. Remember about parables. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's just about to leave them. They've seen all kinds of things. They've done all kinds of things. Now what he's doing is he's telling them stories. And what he wants us to do with these stories is not just hear them as stories. He wants us to understand them as part of our life. In other words, he wants us to identify with one of the characters or some of the characters in the story and live out what happens to them. Thank you very much. Thank you. Really appreciate it. So, and unless you enter into the character, unless you identify with the character and let happen to you what's happening to the character in the story, unless you do that, you will not get the point of it. It'll just be another story. But if you let, if you become somebody in that story and let the things of the story happen to you, God has built us to mirror neurons to be able to interact with that in a way that it will go down in us in a way that will change us. The next time we see something, it'll, it'll go into a different place in us. You see that? So that's what you've got to do with parables. Now, last week we saw an interesting thing. For one of the first times in parables, first time in Luke, what God did was is the people that we were identify, to identify with, namely the shepherd and the woman, clearly those were both God. God is the one who rejoices when one who is lost is found. God is the one who rejoices when this person of great value comes back. So that's clearly God. But because we've learned how to do parables, God wanted us to feel what he feels. Because he wants us to be instruments of this in the world. He wants us to be part of this repentant process in somebody else's life so that we can join him and the heavenly host in joy. See it? The fullness of joy. So this is what God's doing. Well, in the parable that we're doing today, which is the prodigal son, the most famous parable of all, I think, right? I mean, if, you don't even, if you're not a Christian, you've heard of the, par- the prodigal son. You know the story. In the prodigal son, there's three characters. Which one are we supposed to identify with? It turns out all three. Clearly, we're the prodigal son. Clearly, we are the ones who were given much, but then walked our own way, (laughs) right? And squandered it. And at some point, came to repentance, if you know him, and you started to walk back to him. So clearly, we're the prodigal son and praise God for it, right? Clearly, we're supposed to be feeling the joy of the father in our return instead of wrapping our knuckles and Right? The other things that could have happened because of what schmucks we were. Right? But we're also, clearly, the father in the prodigal son is God. Clearly. But the two parables that come right before it, and these are all three connected in one discourse by Jesus. He's prepped us to also identify with the father. We're to be the ones who are peering over the horizon who are pining to see the return of this one that we love. 
Yes, they've done something incredibly stupid, but we love them and we want them back and what would we give for it? And so we're longing to see them coming. You see that? He wants us to be that person. And this is the one, this third one is the one where the real meat is in this sermon. He also wants us to identify with the older brother that resents horribly how nicely the father has treated that scumbag son. You know, profligate brother. Wait till we get there and watch what God does. Because what we think is, we think, well, I get it, maybe I have, but I'm not really that person. Nobody reads the prodigal son parable and identifies as the older son. Nobody. By the time we get done, you're going to say, oh my God, I am him. <laughs> wow, bummer. But that then unlocks what God can do. So with that in mind, here we go. To illustrate the point further, the two parables he's just told, shepherd and the coin, Jesus told him this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So the father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings, moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, and you don't want to know what was in those pods. But no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, now listen to this, has this guy repented? Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Watch this. Please take me on as your hired servant. As a hired servant. Okay? That's, what he's, that's what's in his heart to do. Now watch what happens, though. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion. No, wait a minute. What would you be filled with? Remember, be in the different spots. This son took half your wealth and squandered it in a horrible way. Filled with love and compassion? Once burned your fault. Twice burned my fault. This kid is, I gotta, what hoops can I set up for him to jump through? Yes, I love him and I can't, I hope they, but I gotta do, I gotta, he can't just come home. Right? Can he? Filled with compassion, he ran to his son. I love that one, too. Who runs to who? <laughs> Jesus Christ is the Father extending himself to us. I have sinned. He embraced him and kissed him. And his son said to him, now listen to this. Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. And then what comes next? But look what happens. The father interrupts him. <laughs> Doesn't even let him finish about the hired hand stuff. But his father said to the servants, quick. See, he just interrupts me. Just whatever, whatever. Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Wait a minute. What is, let's be right, fair. 
Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but he is now found. So the party began. Now, I've been reading this with us trying to identify as the father so that we can read what our reactions would be to a child who has done this. And there are many people sitting in this room right now who have had children do something like this. In fact, there are several people sitting in this room who were the child that did this. <laughs> right? And you know, even as the child that did this, this reaction is crazy. When you came back to your parents for the thing that you had done, was it just slate wiped clean? It's just not how we are. I'm not saying it didn't happen, and if it did for you, you got one of the very few good ones. But the reason why we love this story, the reason why this story is so popular is because that's phenomenal. The father responds in a way that just doesn't make any sense to us. It's so not like us. It's so not like anything. It's so gracious. It's so loving. Does the son need to jump through any more hoops? Does he? Who's being placated? Who's being satisfied by the son jumping through a few more hoops? Not the son, the father. And what's that doing? It's creating a wall. It's creating, a, I'm a scumbag in the son. I am truly a scumbag. Here's what the father is breaking through. All of that. Demolishing the wall. You're my son. I love you. Come. And I'm going to fet you. I'm going to put a, a robe on you and, you know, kill the fatted calf and have a party. This is... This is the best story ever. <laughs> this is so cool. This is so unexpected. This is so surprising. This is so God. And when we see it, we go, I want to be like that. I want to have that reaction. I want to be that kind of a human being. But when we put ourselves in the story, we see that it's not easy, right? The truth about God, and this is going to be a very important principle as we get going, a little, just in a little bit. The truth about God is this, and it was said way before this parallel was spoken by Jesus. God does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. His unfailing love towards those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far from us as east is from west. This is Jesus Christ, right? In, the, in Jesus, who is God, taking upon himself my sins. He has taken my sins from me utterly. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. You see it? I mean, this is who God is. And this is why we read that prodigal son story and we love God because of it. And in part, we love him all the more when we recognize that it's so hard for us to have done the same thing. So already we're seeing in this story, and I'm reading it in a certain way with you. If I'd have just preached it the way it's normally preached, I'd have just told you how great God is, and that's it. But again, I want to tell you that there's something in this story that Jesus is trying to make clear that doesn't come out when you preach it that way. Not that that isn't a perfectly fine sermon, because that is who God is. But there's something that's deeper goes like this. Meanwhile, the older son's in the field working. And we've got to identify with him now. You've got to put it on. 
would you be upset that dad was doing this for your brother who ran away and did maybe some of the things that you wanted to do? Nah, we would never go there. Even if you weren't in, inclined towards that. Let's be fair and realize that this isn't fair. How we think about it. When he returned home, he heard the music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants, what's going on? Your brother is back, he was told. Your father has killed the fatted calf. We're celebrating because of his safe return. And the older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. Praise God for what a great person this is. Right? I wish I'd have been like that. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours, this, there's an adjective that belongs there. <laughs> adverb. No, not adverb, adjective. Did I get it right? Yeah, I'm so bad with that part. Uh, adjective. Gave me even, the son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes. You celebrate by killing the fatted calf? There should be a question mark, exclamation point, question mark there. See what I mean? This is like incredulous. His father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. Now, let's be clear. The contrast that's being made here, the older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. The father comes out and begs him saying, we have to celebrate for your brother was dead, has come back to life. He's lost and he was found. Okay? This is the heart that God has of somebody repenting and coming back. This is the heart that we get. We all get this, and so here's what we say about it. We get that some people are like that, but not me. You do realize that in a certain sense, there's something like this in play. You do realize who he's talking about here. He's got religious, pharisaical leaders surrounding him. And what he's saying is, is you guys are the older brother. So he is critiquing Jewish religious leaders, right? He is critiquing them. He's saying, you guys think because you're first, you ought to get more, and you're jealous of what I'm pouring out for the Gentiles. Not cool. Not the heart of God. The heart of God is that someone should come home, period. Doesn't care how. Just that they come home, that's what's important, right? So we, so we rightly sit in critique of those who would do such things. And then, you know, we talk about Romans 1, 8, 1 chapter 1, verse 18, and through the rest of the chapter. We talk about it all the time, right? Because it's this, it's this passage where God talks about how we should have known and could have known everything there was to know about God, but we keep pushing the truth of him away from us. And as we push the truth away from us, finally, he'll let us slip down another level. I keep saying that's what's happening to us right now. And then it slips down another level, and another level, and another level. And that's what Romans 1.18 is, is these showing what these slippages are, and we're experiencing them all. But we always, we always end Romans chapter 1 at the end of chapter 1. Because after all, surely Paul wrote down chapter 1, verse 1, and then verse 18, and then... But, you know, he didn't do that, did he? He didn't have any chapter and verse numbers on there. 
So here's what Paul meant to say right after he had critiqued how people are pushing God away. Here's what he said next. To who? Who's reading this letter? Christians. The church. Watch the next thing he says. After saying all this stuff that they're right for being guilty of and why God is doing what he's doing. Look, you may think you can condemn such people, but you're just as bad. And you, you have no excuse. When you say they're wicked and should be punished, you end up condemning yourselves because you judge others that are doing the very same things you're doing. <laughs> See it? You're doing the same thing. You're pushing them away too. <laughs> Not cool for you to then be judging them. You're actually building up judgment for yourself. Oh, is that true? Let's prove it real quick. Let's just prove it, okay? Enter into this parable. Who are you supposed to be? The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. Who are we supposed to be in this parable? We're not the vineyard owner. That's God. In this parable, we're the people that got hired first. At... He agreed to pay them the normal daily wage and sent them out to work, right? Now own it, live it. At 9 o'clock in the morning, he's passing through the marketplace, saw some people standing around doing nothing, so he hired them, telling them they'd pay him whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard. At noon, again at 3 o'clock, he did the same thing. And then at 5 o'clock, it's not afternoon anymore. 5 o'clock is like quitting time. In fact, they will quit an hour later at 6 now, the, 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 the way that it says it, that afternoon he's in town again and saw some more people standing around and he asked them, why haven't been working today? They replied, because no one hired us. The landowner told him, go out and join the others in my vineyard. Okay, now. That evening he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers. When those hired at 5 o'clock were paid, they received a full day's wage. When those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed they'd receive more. But they too were paid a day's wage. Now, be in the story. Own what he's trying to teach. How do you feel about this? Let's be totally, brutally honest. You don't get to read this as a story right now. You have to be out there in the hot sun, slaving away all day, and somebody comes in when it's cool, at five, and works one hour. How do you feel about them? Let's be honest. There are, at, there are at least two people in this place that actually would rejoice instantly. Their first reaction would be, I'm happy for you. And I don't feel bad for me at all. And so that's two out of how many? What percentage are we? Did we get above 1%? You see it? <laughs> equal pay for equal work. That was hilarious. All right. Now, you see, but that's it. When they received their pay, they protested the owner. Those people worked only one hour. You paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat. He answered one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Well, then take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law? Is it against fairness? For me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I'm kind to others? 
here's what our answer is. Be honest. Yes. <laughs> it's, maybe it's not against the law, but it's against something because it bothers me. <laughs> I'm not cool with this. Right? And until we own what we're not cool with, we're never going to get fixed. We're never going to get rid of what's not cool. So we have to own something. We're the older brother. We don't think we are. Because we, we think I would rejoice in somebody who gets saved in the last seconds of life, and truly we do. But that doesn't mean there isn't something that's still broken in us. And this is what Jesus is trying to get us to own. There's something in us that is still broken. And here's the contrast. Now watch. Here's the brokenness. Here's where it comes from, right here. All these years I've slaved for you. That's what the older son says. Is that accurate? Has the father been the kind of person that indicated any sense whatsoever of having his kids be in a slavery type position with him? Has he demonstrated any kind of hardcoreness or, or brutalness or mentality that would, that would not honor a son that was working for him as a son? Do you see this? What's happened inside of this older person's heart? You know what's really ironic about this story? The prodigal one, as we think, is the one that had the biggest problem. He's not. The older brother's got a bigger problem. Honest to goodness. The prodigal son did what the flesh does. That's never an excuse for it, and it is not good, and it's bad. But I'll tell you what's worse. Thinking that you're good, and you're not. Thinking that you're good, and there's something tweaked. There's something kinked inside of you that is causing you to see God and the world and yourself and everything wrong. The reason why that's worse is not because it's a worse sin. The reason why it's worse is because it hurts you more. You see it? Watch. The contrast is, dear son, this is the kind of God he is. Dear son, you've always stayed with me and everything I have is yours. If you wanted a, if you wanted a feast with your friends, ask me, I'd have given you one, more than one. I'd be happy to do this. You see it? This is the kind of God that he is, but this guy has got it kinked in his head to where he's misunderstanding who God is. Oh. What we're dealing with is how to be changed all the way down to where even our reactions are in the instantaneous moment exactly what we want them to be. And we're, God is trying to reveal to us how easy this is. And right here, what he's doing is, is he's showing us what the problem really is. You know this goes all the way back to the garden, this whole problem. Because here's Eve in the garden, Right? The serpent was the most cunning, and he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Now, right there, that is a bald-faced, flat-out, grotesque lie. God said nothing of the sort. Satan is trying to switch your understanding of who God is, who the Father is, slavery. I'm your... I'm, serving you and I'm sacrificing everything for you and you're such a hard master. See it? 
Satan is trying to spin this thing around on its tail and tell you what's exactly not true. Now, the woman gets it right at the beginning. The woman says, no, we may eat of all the fruit trees in the garden. But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat or touch it or you'll die. Now, did God say you couldn't touch it? Right there, I always say the battle was lost here. Because once she was kinked, once she got it wrong, it was easy for Satan to just insert here and put the wedge in there, drive you away from God. See it? But now watch how he does it. Watch what he does. You must not eat or fish it. Oh, no, you won't die. Here, touch it and see. No problem. Look, you didn't die. God never said you would. Look, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, now look at the perversion about God here. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Who does that make God out to be? Withholding from you. Holding something back. You see it? This is not somebody you can trust. This is somebody who's holding back something that he has because it's, He's just not going to give it to you because that's the kind of petty God that he is. You see it? Oh, man. This is the beginning of all of this. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food. You can touch it. It's good, you know, no problems. And delightful to look at. But here's where it is. But it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. Right? She, she, ate the lie before she ate the fruit. And by eating the lie, it was inevitable that she should eat the fruit. When we get our understanding of God kinked, we've already lost. We should start to tell you what the solution is. Unkink your understanding of God. But let's just follow through. So she ate some of the fruit and she ate it. This is framing, okay? Framing. I'm going to go fairly quick on a fairly deep point here. Um, black lives matter. No, all lives matter. Equal pay, equal work. E lots of politics, lots of framing. Framing, framing, framing. Here's what it is. Uh, there's an Invisibilia, which is an NPR-type show. Uh, two women talking, doing research, giving their research about what motivates us, what moves us, what does this, and so on. Force Kelly is the one that sent it to me. Uh, an incredible podcast on framing. And the, the point of it was, the end point of it was, is, you know, what we don't understand is how much we view the world through a certain frame. And as long as we view it through that frame, we're never going to understand the other frames from which people see things. And so we're not going to be able to match up with them because we can't see what they're seeing because we're not getting outside of our frame. We have to realize that our perspective, no matter how much you might think it is global and inclusive, the fact of the matter is you're still framed, and there's an issue here, right? That's framing. Real quickly, they tell a story about a girl. She's growing up as a young girl, and she can't figure out why her friend, people aren't nice to her. She's at a camp. She's walking down a pier where two other girls are in a small sailboat putting up a sail, she is a very smart girl, and she knows how to do the sale. These girls obviously do not. She goes over to the two girls, and what she says is, is she basically says, let me help you do that. The two girls get mad at her and chase her away. 
He's going, why did they get mad at me? I was just trying to help. I know how to do it. They obviously didn't. I wasn't doing anything mean to them. I wasn't saying they were stupid or anything. I just knew how to help. I was trying to help. What did I miss? Throughout the rest of her life, she talks about these really painful things that happen where she just doesn't connect with people. Finally, she gets old enough to where somebody tests her, and it turns out she has Asperger's. We have the highest rate of Asperger's in the country right here. Asperger's is an autism spectrum issue, very smart. But wait till you hear this. This girl gets diagnosed with Asperger's, and she knows she's got this, but she still doesn't know what it means and, and everything else and how it's supposed to go. So what these Asperger's researchers do is they show her a film. And in this film, what happens is, is that there's a girl at a, in a cubicle who has lent a DVD to another person at the company, and somebody else is bringing back the DVDs to the girl. And what happens in the story is, in this little film, is that a guy brings back two DVD covers, gives them to the girl, and says, is everything okay? The girl opens up the two DVD cases, and they're empty, both of them. And the girl says, sure. And then closes them up. And then the guy says, would you lend the DVDs to this person again? And she said, you bet. Now, this girl sees that film, and she's trying to figure out, why did the girl say sure? Because the, there were no DVDs in it. And what does she mean she would do it again? The guy didn't bring back the DVDs. This film doesn't make any sense to me. So they hook her up to a magnet. This, is, this makes me cry. They hook her up to a magnet, and they give her a half hour of this intense magnetized treatment in her brain, and for some reason that they do not understand yet, and they're trying to figure out why. But for some reason, it helps. It allows Asperger's people to feel emotions. And suddenly she sees, they show her the film again, and suddenly she sees that when the woman gets handed the DVD cases and the guy says, is, is everything okay? And she says, sure. She's not saying sure as in yes. She's saying sure as in no way. Sarcasm. As an Asperger's person having difficulty reading emotions, she didn't see the emotion of frustration, of anger. She didn't read the response as sar sarcasm. She read it straight. Sure, that means yes. But sure, that doesn't mean yes, that means no. Right? Would you lend him to him again? You bet. <laughs> and this woman said, for the first time in my life, I understood what people were experiencing that I didn't get. I'd never felt it. I had never felt a conversation and the emotions that are in human interactions. I understood why the two girls were mean to me. It was because they didn't care about putting up the sale. I was in, interposing on a time that they were having together, working through something. It wasn't about getting the sale up. It was about the connection, the relationship. Now, there's much more to this, and I would highly recommend you just, just you know, Google Invisibilia uh, Frames. I'm sure you'll find it right there. Because there's much more to this, but here's the thing that I want to say to us. Okay? We are in a frame, whether we like it or not, that we cannot actually get out of. Unless the Holy Spirit does something to take us out of it. 
you can try and it'll help. But you can't really see what it is to walk in another person's shoes unless the Holy Spirit does in you something to where you can. Catch it? Here's what I want us to, here's why I'm saying all that. This idea of framing, who is God to you? Who is God to you? Because I'll tell you a parable about a framing story where it turned out not good. Now watch this. To one person he gave five talents. And I love the play on words there because a talent in this setting means weight. And it turns out to be several million dollars worth of goods that was given to the one with five. To one he gave five talents. To another he gave two talents. To one he gave one talent. But I love the play on words between you know, money and talent, giftings. So he gave these different giftings to people. The first one, the five, went out, doubled it, came back with ten. The second one, two, came back with four. The third one, now watch, framing, who did he think God to be? I think you're a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant, gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here's your money back. Now, this is a person that has got something about God kinked because what God is saying is, is first of all, I'm not a harsh taskmaster like you say, but even if I was, the better thing to do would have been to try and invest it because you know I'm trying to reap where I don't sow. <laughs> so reap for me. But I'm not a harsh taskmaster. You've read me wrong, and so you've behaved wrongly. You've read me wrong, and so you've been wrong. Can you just imagine going up to the one that had five and earned five more? Well done, good and faithful servant. I'm giving you more. Can you imagine what it is to just have a conversation with that person? It's somebody who you're going to like. Can you imagine having a conversation with the one that thinks God is harsh? That's going to be somebody that's got a chip on their shoulder. You may not know exactly what it is, but you do know there's something about them that's kind of poisoned, that's broken. Not just broken, but that is tweaked, wrong. You see it? We have to have something happen when we get wrong because here's the truth, guys. I've told you too many stories. I won't do it again today. But the thing about me sorry, but the thing about me is I was against God strongly. I didn't even bother to bring it up because I felt it was so stupid. But I was not for God, and I felt it was stupid to believe in him. And then God saved me. And when he saved me, it wasn't from need. It wasn't because I was desperate and called out and he met me, which would have been very loving, but it was in abundance. I had everything, and he saved me. And showed me that he'd given me everything. In fact, showed me three times where he'd saved my life. I mean, literally saved my life. I told you guys one. I told you guys one on the, the motorcycle. That was one where I hit a car going 50 miles an hour with no helmet on. And I, I went from here longer than behind that, the back of the sanctuary where I woke up again. On my feet. With not a bruise on my body, not a scrape on me. Not any road rash. Not any, any indication that I'd ever hit the ground at all. And I flew that far. No indication I'd ever hit the ground. One thing that did happen, though, it pulled my pants off. So I was sitting in the middle of the street with no pants on. <laughs> Just saying. Okay? 
Just because. I got to share that. Here's another one. I'm driving a car 100 miles an hour, getting lift on a road I'd never been on before with four people in the car. And, and I get over one where we're unlifted, and all of a sudden the road just does a 90-degree turn. And it happened to be a turn I found out later where my brother's former girlfriend and four people two years before, exactly when we were doing it, slid and hit the dirt. And when they hit the dirt, they rolled and killed them all, killed all four of them. And, and we were going at least 90, probably close to 100 miles an hour sideways. By the time we got right to where that dirt would be, and I swear to God, I didn't know God at this point in time. I don't know how to describe it. I can tell you the four people in the car have never talked about it with each other. Because I'm telling you what happened was, to me, two giant hands came out and hit the car, went forward and hit the car with as much force as the car was going this direction. So hard, in fact, that the car was right at the edge of the road and bounced back into the middle of the road. Now, physics, tell me. You got, there's a lot of smart people in here. Tell me how that happens. No dent on the side. No dent. If a pole would have been there, that would have just shot us up in the air. It hit us with as much force as we were going that direction and bounced us back out into the middle of the road. After I got saved, I didn't have to ask him. <laughs> I knew exactly what had happened. Another time, I'm on a road and it's all dry, except you go behind a shaded place and it turns into ice, and it's a 100-foot ledge almost straight up and down, and I launched off of that ledge with four people in the car. Not even a neck injury when we hit the bottom. Nothing to anybody. Now, I tell you these things because when I say that God is loving, I want to say I have a fairly deep war chest from which to pull my understanding of his love. Because I was an idiot. And God saved me from myself. And blessed me in ways that are incredible. And I, I, can, I can't possibly, I think, love him more except that he keeps showing me how. Right? Now, I do want to say there's people sitting in here that don't have as deep a war chest, you think. I get that those are fairly dramatic stories. I'm a fairly dramatic guy. I get that other people have lived their life in a narrower band of existence, but what I want to say is if you will look properly at your band of existence, whatever that is, what you're going to see is over and 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 over God loving you and blessing you and holding you. And does that mean you're never going to have any hard things? I can tell you, I've had some really, really hard things. But I can tell you, I've always looked at those hard things in the light of the thing I know more about God, and that's that, I, that He loves me, that He's got me, that He's caring for me, that He's holding me. You do realize that the whole of the Bible makes this argument, right? You do realize the earliest book in the Bible makes an argument that the last book in the Bible, the last one written, also makes. The earliest written book in the Bible turns out not to be um, Genesis. It's Job. That's the early book. And what's the point of Job? It's actually not complicated at all. Here's what it is. 
Satan, who's under judgment, is saying to God, who's saying about Job that he's good, why wouldn't he be good? Look what you've given him. Huge family, all kinds of money, great health. Take that stuff away from him and he'll curse you to your face. You see what he's doing? He's slapping him. He's taking off the glove and slapping him and saying, your plans are not good. You think you've got it all laid out, but you do not. You are wrong, God, about what you think. You're wrong. Take this away from him and he will curse you to your face. And let's be clear about something. Without doing exactly that, Job comes as close to it as you can. Because he curses the day that he was born. And he says, why would you ever have borne me for this? If this is what you were going to do to me. So if you're somebody who's struggled with something that has got you kinked on how you think about God, Job is your book. And the reason why is because of the first thing that God ever told mankind, the thing that he wanted ringing in their ears, is this. It isn't about you. It isn't that the, the things that you suffer, look, everyone who does not know God, God is love, but, but Job. Job replied to the Lord, remember, sorry, remember how Job ends. What he comes to is, God has never told him that Satan challenged him and that's why all these bad things are happening. God never tells him that, ever. Job doesn't find that out till heaven. But what God does is he says, if you're going to question my plans, let me ask you a few questions first. Because if you're going to think that what I'm doing is unfair, surely you must know everything about what makes things fair. You must know everything that I'm doing. And what Job says to him is, you ask me, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? Me. I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen and I will speak. I have some questions for you and you must answer them. I had only heard about you before. But now I've seen you with my own eyes and I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Repentance. We think we know, and then we find out. Now, this is the first book in the Bible, and what, here's what God's showing us. Framing? Unfair to me. That's one frame. And if you're, if you're Job, it was unfair. Did he do anything wrong? No. God himself said he doesn't do anything wrong. So he didn't do anything wrong. This happened to him without any reason that Job could see. That seems unfair. So it's unfair to me. But then there is a second frame, isn't there? A way to frame. God has a bigger picture and purpose. Here's the point. Job sits in heaven right now, and here's what he does not say. Boy, you know, God, what you did to me, I'm still trying to get over that. That was really rough. I still don't get it. Here's what Job says. You used me to show all the world who you are? That no matter what happens to you, no matter how bad it is, that you're in control? That you love us and that you care for us and that your plan is perfect and pure? That your plan is, is all-powerful and all-knowing? You used me to show the whole world who you 
are, no matter what's happening, I'm not worthy of that. Job doesn't have an issue with God. Job is blown away by God. Now, that's the first book in the Bible. Here's the last one, Revelations. Okay? Well, yeah. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the people slaughtered because of God's word and testimony they had. Boy, isn't that the good way to preach the gospel? Right? Let me tell you how the first book starts. This is how Christianity is. The first book starts with really, really hard, crappy things can happen to you, but God has a plan. You may not find out about it until you die, but God has a plan. Oh, and by the way, if you're a Christian, when the end comes, you're probably going to get martyred, slaughtered. Would you want to come? Want to sign up? Sign the little pledge? Just make sure you tithe. Right? They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge and avenge our blood from those who live on the earth? Can you, I don't think that they're asking that. I don't know the emotion that they're asking, but I don't think the emotion is accusatory. I think they know that God is good. But you do hear question in it. They are questioning him. How long? A lot of people have died. A lot of stuff has happened. This is the end book. So the first framing is for Christians, we say, how long? For non-Christians, that's a lot of death. What's up with that? You say God is love and all these people are dying. How can you make that argument? Well, here's how I can make it. In the end, what God says in Revelation is, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to their works by what's written in the books. The dead were judged. What, what does this mean? God gave us a choice. He's not compelling anybody to be with him, period. He made you and he wants you to be with him and he's pining, he's longing, he's waiting for you to come to repent. He's waiting for you to come back. Longing for you to come back. If you don't, then the things that you did to separate yourself from him, you'll be judged for and you'll be separated from him. Well, what about the people in the book of life? Well, they're not judged. Why? Because it's already been paid for by Jesus. It's already been paid. There's nothing to judge anymore. The judgment came and done. In fact, what happens to Christians is then I heard a loud voice from the throne and look, God's dwelling is with his humanity and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God, which is to say, as I always do, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because God's glory illuminates it. Its lamp is the Lord. Here's what he's saying. The dead get judged for their, the ones who are in the book of life go to become one with God. You can see how a person that doesn't want to be with God, who hasn't chosen to be with God, would not ever be right to be with God. Oneness, like he's talking about. It's not like you live in a city and you can hide out in your cul-de-sac having some issue with God. You're in him. And so the third frame is to understand God. What's his goal? It's that we become truly one with him. That's it. 
In fact, it's so strong. It's not my heavenly Father's will that even one should perish. How long, Lord? How long? How long is it? As long as it takes for every single one who's going to come to come. And guess who's the one who's bringing them? Us. It's us. By how we martyr, by how we live, by how we act, by how we react. We're the ones that help people come in. So I started this whole sermon by saying, God is going to make it really easy for us to live in transformation. Now let me tell you what I mean by that. Here's all it takes to live in transformation. Know who God is. For real. If you know who he is, if you really are holding on to who he is, you will act differently. You will react differently. Because you will see the whole world differently. Because how you think about God is how you're going to be. C.S. Lewis. When you're thinking about God as being a certain way and you know you're made in his image, then you become that image. And you react in that surprising way. Here's who God is. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor fears for today, our worries for tomorrow, nor sickness, nor disease, nor pain, nor conflict, nor persecution, nor anything. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. So what do we have to do? Use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God, including ourselves. We capture their and our rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. Here's how you can be changed. Here's the easy way to be changed. In everything that happens, examine who's God in this moment. Who is he? When you see it, it'll become part of you and it'll change you. Turns out it's not hard to be changed at all. You just have to want to do it. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, your people come before your throne. We grow up. We become the people that you want us to be. We get weaned from milk. And we start chewing on meat. And what we say in Jesus' holy and precious name is, your will be done in us, but not just your will, you be done in us. Who you are be made real to us. Be made whole to us. Be made full to us. Let us become who you are. It is who you've made us to be in the new creation. It's the image that you intended all along. Let us enter into that image. Let us enter into that truth. Let us be those who are surprising because we always see the world differently than the world sees itself because you are different than the world. In Jesus' holy and precious name, reach down in front of you and 